welcome to our Read Aloud. Um, and help yourself to coffee and cookies. We have something really different today. Erin Riley Sanders, who is a PhD graduate assistant teaching children's literature in the School of Teaching and Learning, of course, um, is going to read from some children's books for the kid in all of us. <laughs> and they'll be fun. This, I think this is going to be really entertaining. From the Pirates in, in an Adventure with Scientists uh, by Gideon Defoe and uh, Alcatraz versus the Evil Librarians. I thought we'd get a few librarians in for that by Brandon Sanderson. And it's a book by Lane Smith. Um, now, Erin has been studying children's literature for about the last 12 years, including while well, getting her BA in architecture. And she's been involved in a, a, some really big and interesting projects with that. Um, and she got that from Miami University, wasn't that right? And um, she also worked six years in the Columbus Metropolitan Library uh, while acquiring her master's degree in, archi um, in architecture here at OSU. So, um, and of course, while she started her coursework in her current program, she has a particular liking for fantasy and historical fiction, which I think more and more people are really getting involved with. Everyone I talk to seems to have an interest in historical fiction these days. And recently, she's contributed an annotated bibliography of funny graphic novels to the Joe Osborne Award for Humor in Children's Literature uh, website. And she reads books for, for preschoolers, elementary school kids, middle schoolers, teenagers, and adults. So she's just bringing all kinds of things in for us here today. Um, Karen, would you like to take over? And I would. I, I do not discriminate based on age. We actually have um, one, uh, I would say, juvenile middle grade reader with us, and then we're going to do a picture book, and then I will conclude with a little bit of adult material, just in case there's anybody else who does discriminate based on age. This is Alcatraz versus the Evil Librarians, and I really hope the librarians did not attend today, um, or we might run into some issues when we tell you about the real world and how it works. This is by one of my favorite authors, Brendan Sanderson, who also writes adult fantasy books. Um, but I do need to start with his foreword. Um, this is his foreword. I am not a good person. And we will have a lot of cases where the main character, Alcatraz, is talking directly to, to the audience. Um, so I am not a good person. Oh, I know what the stories say about me. They call me ocular dramatis, hero, savior of the 12 kingdoms. Those, however, are just rumors. Some are exaggerations. Most are outright lies. The truth is far less impressive. When Mr. Bagsworth first came to me suggesting that I write my autobiography, I was hesitant. However, I soon realized that this was the perfect opportunity to explain myself to the public. As I understand it, this book will be published simultaneously in the Free Kingdoms and Inner Libraria. This, this presents something of a problem for me, since I'll have to make this story understandable to people from both areas. Those in the Free Kingdoms may be unfamiliar with things like bazookas, briefcases, and guns. However, those in Libraria, or the Hushlands, as they are often called, will likely be unfamiliar with things like oculators, Kristen, and the depth of the librarian conspiracy. I, of course, myself am a hushlander, just like you, but I've now been enlightened by this wonderful book about 
the realm of inner librarian. To those of you in the free kingdom, I suggest that you find a reference book. There are many that would do to explain the unfamiliar terms to you. After all, this book will be published as a biography in your lands, so it's not my purpose to teach you about the strange machines and archaic weaponry of Libraria. My purpose is to show you the truth about me and to prove that I am not the hero that everyone says I am. In the Hushlands, those librarian-controlled nations such as the United States, Canada, and England this book will be published as a work of fantasy. Do not be fooled. This is no work of fiction, nor is my name really Brandon Sanderson. Both are guises to hide the book from librarian agents. Unfortunately, with these precautions, I suspect that the librarians will discover the book and ban it. In that case, our free, free kingdom agents will have to sneak into libraries and bookstores to put it on the shelves. Count yourself lucky if you found one of these secret copies. For you Hushlanders, I know that the events of my life may seem wondrous and mysterious. I will do my best to explain them, but please remember that my purpose is not to entertain you. My purpose is to open your eyes to the truth. I know that in writing this, I shall make new friends in either world. People are never pleased when you reveal that their beliefs are wrong, but that is what I must do. This is my story. The story of a selfish, contemptible fool. The story of a coward. So, on to Alcatraz. So, there I was, tied to an altar made from outdated encyclopedias, about to get sacrificed to the dark powers by a cult of evil librarians. As you might imagine, this sort of situation could be quite disturbing. It does funny things to the brain to be in such danger. In fact, it makes a person pause and reflect upon his life. If you've never faced such a situation, then you'll simply have to take my word. If, on the other hand, you have faced such a situation, then you're probably dead and aren't likely reading this. In my case, the moment of impending death has made me think about my parents. It was an odd thought, since I hadn't grown up with them. In fact, until my 13th birthday, I only knew one thing about my parents, that they had a twisted sense of humor. Why do I say this? Well, you see, my parents named me Al, in most cases, this would be short for Albert, which is a fine name. In fact, you have probably known an Albert or two in your lifetime, and chances are that they were decent fellows. If they weren't, then it certainly wasn't the name's fault. My name isn't Albert. Al could also be short for Alexander. I wouldn't have minded this either, since Alexander's a great name. It sounds kind of regal. My name isn't Alexander. I'm also certain that you can think of other names Al might be short for. Alfonso has a pleasant ring to it. Alan would also be acceptable, as would have been Alfred, though I don't really have an inclination towards butlery. My name is not Alfonso, Alan, or Alfred, nor is it Alejandro, Alton, Aldris, or Alonzo. My name is Alcatraz, Alcatraz Smedry. Now, some of you free kingdomers might be impressed by my name. That's wonderful for you, but I grew up in the Hushlands, in the United States itself. But I didn't know about oculators or the like though I did know about prisons. That was why I figured my parents must have a twisted sense of humor. Why else would they name their child after the most infamous prison in US history? On my 13th birthday, I received a second confirmation that my parents were indeed cruel people. That was the day when I unexpectedly received in my mail the only inheritance they left me. It was a bag of sand. I stood at the door, looking down at the package in my hands, frowning as the postman drove away. The package looked old, 
Its strings were frayed and its brown paper packaging was worn and faded. Inside the package, I found a box containing a simple note. Alcatraz, happy birthday. Here's your inheritance as promised. Love, mom and dad. Underneath the note, I found the bag of sand. It was small, perhaps the size of a fist, and was filled with ordinary brown beach sand. Now my first inclination was to think that the package was a joke. You probably would have thought the same. One thing, however, made me pause. I set the box down, then smoothed out its wrinkled packaging paper. One edge of the paper was covered with wild scribbles, a little like those made by a person trying to get the ink in a pen to flow. On the front, there was writing. It looked old and faded, almost ineligible in places. But yet, it was accurately spelled out my address, an address I'd been living at for only eight months. Impossible, I thought. Then I went into my house and set the kitchen on fire. Now, I warned you that I wasn't a good person. Those who knew me when I was young never would have believed that one day I would be known as a hero. Heroic just didn't apply to me. Nor did people use words like nice or even friendly to describe me. They might have used the word clever, though I suspect that devious might have been more correct. Destructive was another common one that I heard, but I didn't care for it. It wasn't actually all that accurate. No, people never said good things about me. Good people don't burn down kitchens. Still holding the strange package, I wandered toward my foster parents' kitchen lost in thought. It was a very nice kitchen, modern looking with white wallpaper and lots of shiny chrome appliances. Anyone entering it immediately would notice that this was the kitchen of a person who took pride in their cooking skills. I set my package on the table, then moved over to the kitchen stove. If you're a hushlander, then you would have thought I looked like a fairly normal American boy, dressed in loose jeans and a t-shirt. I've been told that I was a handsome kid. Some even said that I had an innocent face. I was not too tall, had dark brown hair, and was skilled at breaking things. Quite skilled. When I was young, other kids called me a klutz. I was always breaking things, plates, cameras, chickens. It seemed inevitable that whatever I picked up, I would end up dropping, cracking, or otherwise mixing up. Not exactly the most inspiring talent a young man ever had, I know, but however, I just generally tried to do myself my best despite it, just like I did this day. Still thinking about the strange package, I filled a pot with water. Next, I got out a few packs of instant ramen noodles. I sat them down looking at the stove. It was one of those fancy ones with real flames. My foster mother, Joan, wouldn't settle for electric. Sometimes it was daunting, knowing how easily I could break things. The one simple curse seemed to dominate my entire life. Perhaps I shouldn't have tried to fix dinner. Perhaps I should have simply retreated to my room. But what was I to do, stay there all the time? Never go out because I was worried about the things I might break? Of course not. I reached out and turned on the gas burner. And of course, the flames immediately flared up around the sides of the pan, far higher than should have been possible. I quickly tried to turn down the flames, but the knob broke off in my hand. I tried to grab the pot and take it off the stove, but of course the handle broke off. I stared at the broken handle for a moment, then looked up at the flames. They flickered, catching the drapes on fire. The fire gleefully began to devour that cloth. Well, so much for that, I said with a sigh, tossing the broken handle over my shoulder. I left the fire burning once again. I must remind you that I'm not a very nice person and picked up my strange package as I walked out into the den. There I pulled out the brown paper, flattening it against the table with one hand and looking at the stamps. 
One had a picture of a woman wearing flight goggles with an old-fashioned airplane in the background behind her. All the stamps looked old, perhaps as old as I was. I turned on the computer and checked a database of stamp issues and found that I was right. They had been printed 13 years ago. Someone had taken quite a bit of effort to make it seem like my present had been packaged, addressed, and stamped over a decade earlier. That, however, was ridiculous. How would the sender have known where I'd be living? During the last 13 years, I'd gone through dozens of sets of foster parents. Besides, my experience has been that the number of stamps it takes to send a package increases without warning or pattern. The postage people I are, the postage people are, I'm convinced, quite sadistic in that regard. There was no way someone could have known 13 years ago how much postage it would cost to send a package in my day. I shook my head, standing up and tossing the M key from the keyboard into the trash. I stopped trying to stick the keys back on. They always fell off again. I got the fire extinguisher from the fall closet, then walked back into the kitchen, which was now quite thoroughly billowing with smoke. I put the box and extinguisher on the table, then picked up a broom, holding my breath as I calmly knocked the tattered remnants of the drapes into the sink. I turned on the water, then finally used the extinguisher to blast the burning wallpaper and cabinets, also putting out the stove. The smoke alarm didn't go off, of course. You see, I'd broken that previously. All I needed to do was to rest my hand against his case for a second, and it had fallen apart. I didn't open a window, but did have the presence of mind to get a pair of pliers and twist the, the, gas stoves, the stove's gas valve off. Then I glanced at the curtains, a smoldering ashen lump in the sink. Well, that's it, I thought, a bit frustrated. Joan and Roy will never have to put up with me after this. Perhaps you think I should have felt ashamed. But what was I supposed to do? Like I said, I couldn't just hide in my room all the time. Was I to avoid living just because life was a little different for me than it was for regular people? No, I simply learned to deal with my strange curse. I figured that others would simply have to do as well. I heard a car in the driveway. Finally realizing that the kitchen was still rank with smoke, I opened the window and began using a towel to fan it out. My foster mother, Joan, rushed into the kitchen a moment later. She stood, horrified, looking at the fire damage. I tossed the towel aside and left without a word, going up to my room. Um, so his foster parents are now calling his caseworker. Um, and the caseworker shows, shows up. Mrs. Sheldon, a new voice from below, acknowledging Joan said, I came as soon as I heard about the accident. It was a woman's voice familiar to me, business-like Kurt with more than a little condescension. I figured those were all the reasons why Miss Fletcher wasn't married. Miss Fletcher, Joan said, faltering now that the time had come. They usually did. I'm sorry to No, Miss Fletcher said. You did well to last this long. I can arrange for the boy to be taken tomorrow. I closed my eyes, sighing quietly. Joan and Roy lasted quite long, longer certainly than any of my other recent sets of foster parents. Eight months was a valiant effort when taking care of me was concerned. I felt a little twist in my stomach. Where is he now? Miss Fletcher asked. He's upstairs. I waited quietly. Miss Fletcher knocked, but didn't wait for my reply before pushing open the door. Miss Fletcher, I said. You look lovely. It was a stretch. Ms. Fletcher, my personal caseworker, might have been a pretty woman had she not been wearing a pair of hideous horn-dreamed glasses. She perpetually kept her hair up in a bun that was only slightly less tight than the dissatisfied line of her lips. 
She wore a simple white blouse and a black ankle-length skirt. For her, it was a daring outfit. The shoes, after all, were maroon. The kitchen, Alcatraz, Miss Fletcher asked. Why the kitchen? It was an accident, I mumbled. I was trying to do something nice for my foster parents. You decided that you'd be kind to Joan Sheldon, one of the, the city's most finest and most renowned chefs, by burning down her kitchen. I shrugged. Just wanted to fix dinner. I figured even I couldn't mess up ramen noodles. Ms. Fletcher snorted. Finally, she walked into my room, shaking her head as she strolled past my dresser. She poked my inheritance package with her index finger, harumphing quietly as she eyed the crumpled paper and worn strings. Ms. Fletcher had a theme about messiness. Finally, she turned back to me. We're running out of families, Smedbury. The other couples are hearing rumors. Soon there won't be any place left to send you. I remained quiet, still lying down. Miss Fletcher sighed, folding her arms and tapping her index finger against one arm. You realize, of course, that you are worthless. Here we go, I thought, starting to feel sick. This was my fa least favorite part of the process. I stared up at my ceiling. You are fatherless and motherless, Miss Fletcher said, a parasite upon the system. You are a child who has been given a second, a third, and now 27th chance. And how have you received this generosity with indifference, disrespect, and destructiveness? We don't destroy, I said quietly. I break. There's a difference. Miss Fletcher sniffed in disgust. Then she left me, walking out the door and pulling the door closed with a snap. I heard her say goodbye to the Sheldons promising them that her assistant would arrive in the morning to deal with me. It's too bad, I thought with a sigh. Roy and Joan are really good people. They would have made great parents. Now you're probably wondering about the beginning of the previous chapter, we're now in chapter two, with its reference to evil librarians, altars made from encyclopedias, and its general feeling of, oh no, Alcatraz is about to be sacrificed. Before we get to this, let me explain something about myself. I've been many things in my life. Student, spy, sacrifice, potted plant. However, at this point, I'm something completely different from all of those, something more frightening than any of them. I'm a writer. You may have noticed that I began my story with a quick, snappy scene of danger and tension, but then quickly moved on to a more boring discussion of my childhood. That's because I wanted to prove something to you, that I am not a nice person. Would a nice person begin with such an exciting scene then make you wait almost the entire book to read it? Would a nice person write a book that exposes the true nature of the world to all you ignorant hushlanders, thereby forcing your lives into chaos? Would a nice person write a book that proves that Alcatraz Smedry, the free kingdom's greatest hero, was just a mean-spirited adolescent? Of course not. I woke grumpily the next morning, annoyed by the sound of someone banging on my downstairs door. I climbed out of the bed and threw on a bathrobe. Though the clock read 10 a.m., I was still tired. I had stayed up late, lost in thought. Then Joan and Roy tried to say goodbye. I hadn't opened my door to them. Better to get things over with all that, out, all that gushing. No, I was not happy to be reawoken at 10 a.m., or actually any a.m. I yawned, walking downstairs and pulling open the door, prepared to meet whichever assistant Miss Fletcher had sent to retrieve me. Help! I said, I hadn't intended to swear, but a boisterous voice cut me off before I could get to the O. Alcatraz, my boy, the man at the doorway explained. Happy birthday, O, I said. You shouldn't swear, my boy, the man said, pushing his way into the house. He was an older man who was dressed in a sharp black tuxedo and wore a strange pair of red-tinted glasses. 
He was quite bald, save for a small bit of white hair running around the back of his head, and this puffed out in quite an unkempt fashion. He similarly wore a bushy white mustache, and he smiled quite broadly as he turned to face me, his face wrinkled, but his eyes alight with excitement. Well, my boy, he said, how does it feel to be 13? The same as it did yesterday, I said, when it actually was my birthday. Ms. Fletcher must have told you the wrong date. I'm not packed yet. You're going to have to wait. I tiredly began to walk towards the stairs. Wait, the old man said. Your birthday was yesterday? I nodded. I'd never met the man before, but Miss Fletcher had several assistants. I didn't know them all. Rumbling Rons, the man explained. I'm late. No, I said, climbing the stairs. Actually, you're early, and as I said, you'll need to wait. The man rushed up the stairs behind me. I turned, frowning. You can wait downstairs. Quickly, boy, the old man said. I can't wait. Soon you'll be getting a package in the mail and stop. You know about the package? Of course I do, of course I do. Don't tell me it already came. I nodded. Blistering Brooks, the old man explained. Where, lad? Where is it? I frowned. Did Ms. Fletcher send it? Ms. Fletcher? I've never heard of her. Your parents set that box, my boy. He's never heard of her, I thought, realizing that I'd never verified the old, the old man's identity. Great. I've let a lunatic into the house. Oh, blast, the old man said, reaching into his seat pocket and pulling out a pair of yellow-tinted glasses. He quickly exchanged the light red ones for these and looked around. There, he said, rushing up the stairs, pushing past me. Hey, I called, but he didn't stop. I muttered quietly to myself following. The old man was surprisingly spry for his age, and he reached the door to my room just in a few heartbeats. Is this your room, my boy? The old man asked. Lots of footprints leaving here. What happened to the doorknob? It fell off, my first night in the house. How odd, the old man said pushing the door open. Now, where's that box? Look, I said, pausing the door. You have to leave. If you don't, I'm going to call the police. The police? Why would you do that? Because you're in my house, I said. Well, my ex-house, at least. But you let me in, lad, the old, boy, the old man pointed out. I paused. Well, now I'm telling you to leave. But why? Don't you recognize me, my boy? I raised an eyebrow. I'm your grandfather, lad, Grandpa Smedry. Leavenworth Smedry, oculator dramatist. Don't tell me you don't remember me. I was there when you were born. I blinked, then frowned, then cocked my head to the side. You were there? Yes, yes, the old man said, 13 years ago. You haven't seen me since, of course. And I'm supposed to remember you, I said. Well, certainly. We have excellent memories, we Smedrys know about that box. Grandfather? The man had to be lying. I don't have parents. Why would I have a grandfather? Now, looking back, I realized that this was a silly thought. Everybody has a grandfather, two of them actually. Just because you haven't seen them doesn't mean they don't exist. In that way, grandfathers are kind of like kangaroos. At any rate, I most certainly should have called the police on this elderly intruder. He has been the main source of my problems ever since. Unfortunately, I didn't throw him out. Instead, I watched him put away his yellow-tinted spectacles, retrieving the reddish-tinted ones again. Then he finally spotted the box on my dresser, scribbled on brown paper still sleeve beside it. The old man rushed over eagerly. Did he send it, I wondered? He reached into the box, taking out the note with an oddly reverent touch. He read it, smiling fondly, then looked up at me. So where is it? Grandpa Smedry, or whoever he really was, asked. Where is what? The inheritance, lad, in the box, I said, pointing at the package. There isn't anything in here but the note. What? I said, walking over. 
indeed. The box was empty. The bag of sand was gone. What did you do with it, I asked. With what? The bag of sand, I said. The old man breathed out in awe. So it really came, he whispered, his eyes wide. There was actually a bag of sand in this box? I nodded, slowly. Well, what color was the sand, lad? Um, sandy? Galloping gemmels, he explained, exclaimed. I'm too late. They must have gotten here before me. Quickly, lad, who's been in this room since you received the box? Nobody, I said. By this point, as you can imagine, I was growing a little frustrated and increasingly confused, not to mention hungry and still a bit tired, and a little sore from gym class the previous week. But wasn't that exactly all that was relative? Uh, but that wasn't exactly all that was relevant, is it? Nobody, the old man repeated. Nobody else has been in this room? Nobody, I snapped. Nobody at all, except, I frowned, except Ms. Fletcher. Who is this Ms. Fletcher you keep mentioning, lad? I shrugged. My caseworker. What does she look like? Glasses, I said. Snobbish face. Usually has her hair in the bun. The glasses, Grandpa Smedley said slowly. Did they have horn rims? Usually. I have a ventilating Hobbs, he explained. A librarian. Quickly, lad, we have to go. Get dressed. I'll steal some food from your foster parents. Wait, I said. But the man, old man had already scrambled down from the room, moving with a sudden urgency. I stood dumbfounded. Ms. Fletcher, I thought. Take the inheritance? That's stupid. Why would you want the silly bag of sand? Finally, I just walked over to my dresser. Getting dressed at least seemed like a good idea. I threw on a pair of jeans, a t-shirt, and my favorite green jacket. As I finished, Grandpa Smedry rushed back into my room, carrying two of Roy's extra briefcases. I noticed a leaf of lettuce sticking halfway out of one, while the other seemed to be leaking a bit of ketchup. Here, Grandpa Smedry said, handing me the lettuce briefcase, I pack us lunches. No telling how long it will be before we can stop for food. I raised the briefcase frowning. You pack lunches inside of briefcases? They'll look less suspicious that way. We have to fit in. Now let's get moving. The librarians could already be working on that sand. So, I said. So, the old man explained. Lad, with those sands, the librarians could destroy kingdoms, overthrow cultures, dominate the world. We must get them back. We have to strike quickly and possibly at great peril to our lives. But that's the Smedry way. I lowered the briefcase, if you say so. Before we leave, I need to know what our resources are. What's your talent, lad? I frowned. Talent? Yes, Grandpa Smedry said. Every Smedry has a talent. What's yours? Uh, playing the oboe? This is no time for jokes, lad, Grandpa Smedry said. This is serious. If we don't get that sand back, well, I said, sighing, I'm pretty good at breaking things. Grandpa Smedry froze. Maybe I shouldn't play with the old man, I thought, feeling guilty. He may be a loon, but that's no reason to make fun of him. Breaking things? Grandpa Smedry said, sounding odd. So it's true. Why, such talent hasn't been seen in centuries. Look, I said, raising my hands. I was just joking around. I don't mean... I knew it, Grandpa Smedry said eagerly. Yes, yes, this improves our chances. Come, lad, we have to get moving. He turned and left the room again, carrying his briefcase and rushing eagerly down the stairs. Wait, I cried, chasing after him. However, when I reached the door, I paused. There was a car parked on the curb outside, an old car. Now, when you read the words old car, you likely think of a beat-up or rusted vehicle that barely runs. A car that is old, kind of in the same way that, you know, cassette tapes are old. This was not such a car. It was not like cassette tapes. 
being old. It was not even like records being old. No, this car was old like Beethoven is old, or at least so it seemed. To me, and likely to the rest of you living in the Hushlands, the car looked like an antique, kind of like a Model T, but that was just my assumption. The point is that many times, the first thing a person presumes about something or someone is inaccurate, or at the very least incomplete. Take the young Alcatraz Smedry, for instance. After reading my story up to this point, you've probably made some assumptions. Perhaps you've, despite my best efforts, um, felt a little bit of sympathy for me. After all, orphans usually make very sympathetic heroes. Perhaps you've noticed that my habit of using sarcasm is simply a method of hiding my insecurity. Perhaps you've decided that I wasn't a cruel boy, just a very confused one. Perhaps you've decided, despite my feigned indifference, I didn't like breaking things. Obviously, you are a person of very poor judgment. I would ask you to kindly refrain from drawing conclusions that I don't explicitly tell you to make. It's a very bad habit, and it makes authors grumpy. I was none of those things. I was simply a mean boy who didn't really care whether or not he burned down kitchens. And that mean boy was the one who stood on the doorstep watching Grandpa Smedry, waiting eagerly for him to follow. Now perhaps I'll admit that I felt just a little bit of longing, a wishfulness, you might say. Getting a package that claimed to be from parents had made me remember days long ago before I realized how foolish I was being when I yearned to know my real parents. Days when I longed to find somebody who had to love me, if only because they were related to me. Fortunately, I had outgrown those feelings. My moment of weakness passed quickly, and I slammed the door closed and locked the old man outside. Then I went into the kitchen to get some breakfast. That, however, is when someone drew a gun on me. And we're going to get just a little bit of the next chapter here. So chapter three, a little bit of cliffhanger I'd like to take this opportunity to point out something important. Should a strange old man of questionable sanity show up at your door, suggesting that he is your grandfather and that you should accompany, accompany him on some quest of mystical import, you should flatly refuse him. Don't take his candy either. Unfortunately, as you will soon see, I was quickly forced to break this rule. Please don't hold it against me. It was done under duress. I'm really not used to being shot at. I walked tiredly into the kitchen, which still smelled of smoke, hoping that the strange old man wouldn't take the pounding on the door. I didn't really want to call the police on him. Not only would I likely break the telephone in the process, I'm particularly bad with phones, but I didn't want the old loon carted away in a police car. That would have been Alcatraz Smedry, a voice suddenly asked. I jumped, turning from the half-burned cupboard, a box of cornflakes in my hand. A man stood in the doorway behind me, wearing slats and a button-down shirt. I frowned, realizing I recognized the symbol on the man's shirt pocket and the standard issue at the cache case. He was a foster care caseworker. This was the man that Miss Fledger had sent to pick me up from the house. I realized then that I'd left the front door open. The caseworker must have come inside looking for me while I was upstairs chatting with the lunatic. Hi, I said, putting down the box. I'll be ready in a bit. Let me have breakfast first. You're him then, the caseworker asked adjusting his horn-rimmed glasses. The Smedry kid? I nodded. Good, the man said, then pulled a gun out of his attache case and raised it towards me. It had a silencer on the barrel. I froze, shocked. And don't try to claim that you did anything different the first time a government bureaucrat pulled a gun on you. Fortunately, I eventually found my tongue. Wait, I said, raising my hands. What are you doing? 
Thanks for the sands, kid, the man said, then moved as if to pull the trigger. At that moment, something massive crashed through the wall of my house, something that looked a lot like the front end of an old Model T Ford. I cried out, dodging to the side, and the caseworker stumbled to the ground in the chaos. The man who called himself Grandpa Smedry sat happily in the driver's seat. A chunk of smoke-damaged ceiling fell down onto the hood of the car, throwing up a puff of white dust. The old man poked his head out the window. Lad, he said, might I point out that you have two choices right now? You can get in the car with me, or you can stay there with the man holding the gun. I stood, dazed. You really don't have much time to decide, Grandpa Smedry said, leaning on me, speaking in a kind of half-whisper as if he were sharing some sort of great secret. Now, I'd like to pause here and note that Grandpa Smedry was lying to me. I didn't have only two choices at that point. I had quite a few more than that. True, I could have chosen to stay in the room and get shot. I could have chosen to get in the car. However, there were lots of other things I could have done. For instance, I could have run around the house flapping my arms and pretending that I was a penguin. The logical choice to make in this situation would have been to call the police on both of those maniacs. Unfortunately, I didn't think of penguins or police and instead did as Grandpa Smedry said, scrambling over and getting into the car. As I've stated at the beginning of this chapter, I really shouldn't have done this. I was soon to learn the dangers involved in following strange men on quests. I don't want to give, any way, give away any more of the story, but let me say that my fate at this point took a sharp turn towards altars, sacrifices, and evil librarians, and possibly some sharks. So, just a little bit of a teaser from Alcatraz versus the evil librarians. Um, he does go on to have some really wonderful adventures, and if you do want to find out what happens to that altar of outdated encyclopedias, well, you'll have to read for yourself. Um, gonna go on to the next book. It's, it's a book, um, actually called, It's a Book by Lane Smith. Lane Smith is a um, very well-known children's illustrator and has sort of a wacky sense of humor. So today we're focusing on funny things, and I just really wanted to share this one with you guys in a library, an establishment of power and um, normalcy, and um, also have this discussion about a little bit of technology here. So this is It's a Book by Lane Smith. And we have a couple, a couple characters that get introduced here on the title page, um, but they do introduce themselves in the text. So we've got a little bit of a conversation here. What do you have there? It's a book. How do you scroll down? I don't. I turn the page. It's a book. Do you blog with it? No. It's a book. Where's your mouse? Can you make the characters fight? Nope. Book. Can I text? No. Tweet? No. Wi-Fi? No. Can it do this? No. It's a book. Look. Arr, nodded Long John Silver. We're in agreement then. He unsheathed his broad cutlass laughing a maniacal laugh. Ha 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 ha. Jim was petrified. The end was upon him. Then. In the distance, a ship. A wide smile played across the lad's face. Too many letters. I'll fix it. 
LJS. R. K. Lol. Jim. So, what else can this book do? Does it need a password? No. Does it need a screen name? No, it's a book. Are you going to give my book back? No. Fine. I'm going to the library. Don't worry, I'll charge it up when I'm done. You don't have to. It's a book, jackass. <laughs> so this is a, a fun one that I like to talk about with my students. I really like the conversation about technology it has, but also the questions of, you know, would you use this with kids? Um, I mean, that is a male donkey, and that's what a jackass is, but at the same time, it's a lot of fun to talk about jackasses in libraries. <laughs> oh, excuse me. I'm um, on a little bit with the uh, pirate theme. I've got a little bit of an adult book to share with you. This is the Pirates! Exclamation point in an adventure with scientists. It's by Gideon Defoe. Um, Gideon Defoe lives in London. He's 28, or he was at the time of writing this. He wrote the Pirates to convince a woman to leave her boyfriend for him. She didn't. Um, but, you know, great sense of humor. This is the first in a little of mini-series. Um, between this book and Alcatraz, I thought that these were the funniest books that I've read in probably the last 10, 10 15 years. Um, I think they're really fabulous. But on to pirates. We are in a fabulous chapter. Uh, this is chapter one, Into Action Under the Pirate Flag. The best bit about being a pirate, said the pirate with gout, is the looting. That's rubbish, said the albino pirate. It's about the doubloons. The doubloons are easily the best bit about pirating. The rest of the pirates, sunning themselves on the deck of the pirate boat, soon joined in. It had been several weeks since the, pirate, the pirates' adventure with cowboys, and they had a lot of time on their hands. It's the pirate grog. Marooney, that's what I like best. Cutlasses. The Spanish main. The ship's biscuits. One of the pirates pulled a special face to show exactly what he thought of this last comment, and soon all the pirates were fighting. With a sound like a bat hitting a watermelon, the pirate fist connected with pirate jaw and a gold tooth bounced across the deck. The pirate with gout found himself run through in a grisly manner, and one of the cabin boys accidentally got a shiny pirate hook in the side of the head. It probably would have gone on like this for hours in this fashion. But both of the heavy wooden doors that led to the downstairs of the boat crashed open and out onto the deck strode the pirate captain himself. The pirate captain cut an impressive figure. If you were to compare him to a type of tree, and working out what sort of tree they would be if they were trees instead of pirates was easily one of the crew's most favorite pastimes, he undoubtedly would have been an oak or maybe a horse chestnut. He was all teeth and curls, but with a pleasant open face. His coat was of a better cut than everybody else's, and his beard was fantastic and glossy, and the ends of it were twisted with expensive-looking ribbons. Living at sea tended to leave you with ratty matted hair, but the pirate captain somehow kept his beard silky and in good condition. Though nobody knew his secret, they all respected him for it. 
they also respected him because it was said that he was wedded to the sea. A lot of pirates claimed that they were wedded to the sea, but usually this was just an excuse because they couldn't get a girlfriend or they were gay pirates. But in the pirate captain's case, none of his crew doubted that he was actually wedded to the sea for a minute. Any of his men gladly would have taken a bullet for him or even the pointy end of a cutlass. The pirate captain didn't need to do much more than clear his throat and roll his eyes a bit to stop the fighting dead in its tracks. What's going on, you scurvy knaves? he bellowed. Pirates are often rude to each other, but without meaning it, so that none of the brawling pirates took being called a scurvy knave too much to heart. We were just discussing what is the best fit of being a pirate is, answered the pirate dressed in green after a bit of an awkward pause. The best bit about being a pirate? Yes, sir, we couldn't decide. I mean, it's all good. The best bit about being a pirate is the shanties. And with the argument settled, the pirate captain strode back into the galley, indicating for the pirate with the scarf to follow. The rest of the crew were left on their own. He's right. It's the shanties, said the albino pirate thoughtfully. One of the other pirates nodded. They are really good. Shall we sing a pirate shanty? The pirate captain was secretly relieved when he heard the strains of a rowdy shanty coming through the roof of the galley. Just recently, he had been worrying about discipline on board the pirate ship, and there was an old pirate motto. If the men are singing a shanty, then they can't be up to mischief. Um, footnote here, very important. Shanty probably derives from the French word chanteur, which means to sing. Most shanties tended to be about frisky mermaids who love putting out for sailors more than anyone. Come to my office for a moment, he told the pirate with a scarf, who was his trusty second in command. The pirate captain's office was full of mementos from the previous pirate adventures. There was a 10-gallon hat from the pirate's adventure with cowboys, and some bits of tentacles from the pirate's adventure with squid, <coughs> as well as several post-it notes reminding the pirate captain to say things like, splice the mainsail, or hard about lads. On the walls, there hung several fantastic paintings of the pirate captain himself. One of them showing him looking anguished and cradling a dead swan. This painting is titled, Why? Another was of the pirate captain reclining naked except for a small piece of gauze. A third pictured the pirate captain sharing a strange futuristic drink with a lady who seemed to be made of metal. There are also quite a lot of nautical maps and charts about the place, even an astrolabe. The pirate captain wasn't 100% sure what the astrolabe did, or whether it was actually an astrolabe rather than a sextant, but he enjoyed fiddling with it when he got bored nonetheless. Right at the moment, boredom was an issue that weighed heavily on the pirate captain's mind. Care for some grog, he asked politely. The scarf-wearing scarf pirate wasn't very thirsty, but he said yes anyway, because if you start turning down grog when you're a pirate, it doesn't help your reputation much. Ship's biscuits? I've got ship's custard creams and ship's bourbons, said the pirate captain. He held out a tin that had a boat painted on it, and the pirate with a scarf took a bourbon because he knew custard creams were the pirate captain's favorites. What do you think all that brawling was about, number two? asked the pirate captain, absentmindedly, seeing how fast he could spin the astrolabe using just one finger. Like the men said, it was just a friendly discussion that got a bit out of hand, replied the scarf-wearing pirate, not entirely sure why the pirate captain was going where the pirate captain was going with this but amazed as always that he could carry on the conversation whilst doing complex calculations with an astrolabe. That sort of thing was why the pirate captain was the pirate captain, the pirate with a scarf reflected. I'll tell you what it was about, said the pirate captain. It was about poor, bored pirates. I've made a mistake. 
We've been moored here in the, in the, the pirate captain rubbed his nose, which he liked to think of as a stentorian nose, even though stentorian was also actually a tone of voice and squinted at one of the charts. The West Indies, sir, said the, the scarf-wearing pirate helpfully. Hmm, well, we've been here too long. I thought that after our exciting adventure with those pirates, we could all do with a break. But I guess us pirates are only really happy when we're pirating. I think you're right, sir, the scarf-wearing pirate said. It's nice enough here, but I keep finding sand in my grog from all that lying on the beach. And those native women wandering around with no tops on, it's a bit much. Exactly. It's time we had another pirate adventure. I'll let the other pirates know where we'll be heading for. Skull Island, the Spanish Main? Oh, Lord, no. If we plunder the Spanish Main, it was Francis Drake who first made the Spanish main a popular target back in 1571. A replica of his boat, the Golden Hind, can be found today next to London Bridge. One more time. I think I'll tear my own beard out, said the pirate captain, trying on the 10-gallon hat and narrowing his eyes like a cowboy as he studied his reflection in the mirror. So what were you thinking? Something will come up. It usually does. Just make sure we've got plenty of hams on board. I didn't enjoy our last adventure much because we ran out of hams about halfway through. And what's my motto? I like ham. It's a good motto, sir. Back on deck, the other pirates had finished their shanty, which had been about how a beautiful sea nymph had left her rich but stupid Royal Navy boyfriend for a pirate boyfriend because he was much more interesting to talk to and could make her laugh. And now they were roaring. This was another common pastime amongst the pirates. Rawr! Wah! Army hearties! It didn't mean much, but it filled a few hours. They all stopped when they saw the pirate with a scarf come back from his meeting with pirate captain. He almost slipped in a pool of the cabin boy's blood that was left over from the fight. Can somebody swab these decks? He said a little tetchily. Left to their own devices, pirates tended to the bone idol. It's Tuesday. Sunday is boat cleaning day, I know, but somebody could get hurt. A diff a, the diffident pirate gave a shrug and went off to find a swabbing cloth, whilst the remaining crew looked up expectantly from where they were sprawled. The scarf-wearing pirate gazed out across the sparkling water and at the tropical beach which, with its alabaster sands and the forest of coconut palms behind that. Then he noticed one of the pretty native ladies, and so he looked quickly down, back down at his pirate shoes. Listen up, pirates, he said. I know all this endless wandering up and down the beach and our interminable attempts to choose which sort of mouth-watering exotic fruit to eat and all these wanton tropical girls knocking around. I know it's been getting you down. A couple pirates muttered something to each other, but the scarf-wearing pirate didn't catch on what they said. So you'll be happy to know, he went on, that the pirate captain is ordered to put out to sea just as soon as we've collected some hams for the journey. A buzz of excitement ran around the deck. Perhaps we should cook the hams first before setting off, asked the pirate dressed in green. That sounds like a good idea, said the albino pirate. Do you think roasting is best, asked the pirate with a nut allergy. The scarf-wearing pirate sighed, because he knew how seriously the pirates took their ham, and he could predict how this was going to end up. He tried to look hard-nosed, which ended up testing tensing all the muscles in his nostrils, and with as much authority as he could manage, he said, yes, roasting is good. It allows the free escape of watery particles that's necessary for full flavor, but we've got to make sure it's regulated by frequent basting from the fat, which has exuded from the meat, combined with a little salt and water. Otherwise, the hands will burn and become hard and tasteless. 
roasting, footnote, in those days, roasting would have meant spit roasting. A popular craze in the part of the 19th century was to use a small dog fastened to a treadmill to turn the spit, freeing up the cook to prepare other dishes. Are you sure, asked the surly pirate, who was dressed in red, barely concealing his contempt, what about boiling? I always find the boiled ham becomes more savory in taste and smell and more firm and digestible. Ah, but if you continue the process too long, you risk the hams becoming tough and less succulent, said the pirate in grain. But the loss from roasting is upwards of 22% of the ham, and the loss from boiling is only 16%. More ham for us? That can only be a good thing. We need to dust the hams with bread raspings if we're going to boil them, and then we should dress the knuckle bone in a frill of white paper. A frill of white paper? What kind of pirate are you? Rah! The pirate started to fight again, and it wasn't until one of them noticed that the pirate captain had come back from his cabin and was now leaning against the mast, drumming his fingers on a barrel that they shuffled to attention. That's enough of that, me beauties, he roared. Let's set a course. At this point, the pirate captain paused in what he hoped to be a dramatic and exciting fashion. For adventure! The crew gave him a bit of collective blank look. Then the pirate sighed. All right, he said with a south. So we're going to skip ahead a little bit so we can get to the part about scientists. We've already hit the pirates. Great pirates, very distinctive. I really like the one with the, the green, dressed in green. Um, I know other people who really like the guy with the scarf. Um, so this chapter is What Evil Lurks in the Unforgiving Deep. Um, we're switching to a different ship with different people on it. This is... Um, uh, Rob Fitzroy and Charles Darwin now, so let's, let's see what they have to say. Confounded man, said Robert Fitzroy, captain of the boat about to be attacked by the pirates. I told you women and the sea were a mighty bad combination. Fitzroy was young for a ship's captain, just 27, but the man he stood back to back with was younger still, a full five years his junior, yet neither bore the frisky demeanor you would expect to find in people under 30. I can't help myself, Robert, said his companion, Charles Darwin, cradling his big round head in his hands. I love her, and I mean to marry her. But I love her too, said Fitzroy. She drives me to distraction. You already knew that. Damn woman with their, with their hair and their faces, muttered Darwin. I demand satisfaction, said Captain Fitzroy. You don't leave me any choice. The captain, the cabin was a little small for a duel neither man being able to stand up properly without grazing his head, but needs must at sea. Three years' voyage, and it should come to this, said Darwin, shakily pouring powder into his pistol. May the best man win. You're a botanist. Footnote. Darwin was serving as an unpaid naturalist aboard the HMS Beagle. The Beagle was unimpressive for its day, just 90 feet long, and of notoriously unseaworthy de design. In his notes, Darwin described the voyage as one continual puke. I am a trained naval officer. I don't fancy your chances much, said Fitzroy. The door was flung open with a crash that made Darwin wince and ran in the breathless cause of the two men's argument, the lovely Lady Mara. Please stop, she said with her lovely mouth. There's... But before Lady Mara could say any more, a cannonball splintered through the cabin wall at tremendous speed and buried itself in the side of her pretty head, knocking her off her feet and leaving her quite dead on the floor. Darwin and Fitzroy stood, 
dumbfounded. Well, I... Should we... Darwin gestured with his gun. Hardly seems much a point. What a damned fool I've been, laughed Darwin. Oh, and I'm as much to blame, said Fitzroy with a grin, pocketing his pistol and slapping his friend on the back. They would have hugged each other right then and there, but they were interrupted by a further crash as another cannonball, and then a pirate screamed in through the window. The two men stood stock still. Don't make any sudden movements, whispered Fitzroy to his companion. Remember, he's more scared of us than we are of him. That's bears, you idiot, hissed Darwin out of the side of his mouth. I don't think it applies to pirates. At the doorway, a second pirate appeared, with a luxuriant beard and a pleasant open face, all teeth and curls. I'm the pirate captain, and I'm here for the gold, he said. Everybody froze. For a moment, the only sound was the gentle roar of the ocean and someone wheezing from the pirate with asthma. Uh, well, uh, help yourself, said Fitzroy eventually, slightly perplexed. Darwin was too terrified to speak. Not that there's a great deal, continued the young captain. I think some of the portholes might be made of gold, but then again, they could be made of brass. So, same sort of color, it's so difficult to tell. Rah, said the pirate captain with a frightful bellow. I know you're carrying a hundred weight in gold bullion. Really, said Fitzroy, quite perplexed. I haven't seen anything of the sort. Perhaps a bit of the boat, perhaps the bit of the boat that's underwater is made of gold, ventured Darwin, finding his voice at last. I mean, it could be made of anything for all we know. You never get to see it. The pirate captain's icy blade against his throat struck him silent. Search the hold, men, and bring me back some gold, said the pirate captain, with a sneer reminiscent of Elvis. The pirates were pretty slick by the stage of their piratical careers. They had managed to overrun the entire ship in a matter of minutes. The only casualty on the pirate side had been the pirate dressed in red, who had twisted his ankle, trying to do that trick where you slide down the face of the mainsail, cutting it as you go with your cutlass, which worked fine up to a point, but still left a 20-foot drop once you reached the bottom of the canvas. Ouch! My ankle! He cried, but none of the other pirates had much sympathy for his reckless showboating. A group of them headed into the hold, but instead of all the clinking you would associate with gold, all they could hear was the chatter of creatures. One of the pirates tore a tarpaulin, only to discover row upon row of cages, each containing some sort of monkey. The gold must be hidden inside these monkeys, shouted the pirate. Several of the pirates put down their flickering lamps, picked up monkeys of various different types, and slid them end to end, but all that spilt out was monkey guts. Gold, said the pirate with an accordion, holding something yellowish up, hopefully. That's not gold, it's a gallbladder, said the pirate with a hook for his hand. Covered in bits of creature and thoroughly dejected, the pirate crew tramped back to Fitzroy's cabin. Pieces of ape, pieces of ape, squawked Gary, the ship's parrot. Well, somebody shut him up, scowled the pirate in green. There's no treasure here, Captain, just a lot of stupid creatures, said the pirate with a scarf. Just like I told you, said Fitzroy. The pirate captain sat down and rubbed his eyes with a weary hand. It suddenly felt like it had been a very long day. But Black Bellamy, he said you are carrying gold for the Bank of England. The Bank of England, said Fitzroy, grabbing at the table as the beagle started to list alarmingly. I believe I've heard there is such a boat, but it's sailing in the vicinity of the West Indies, from what I remember. The West Indies, but that's where we've come from. That Black Bellamy. 
said the pirate with a hooking sort of a hand. He was just trying to get us out of the way so he could plunder it for himself. Why, he hasn't changed at all. We've been bamboozled. The pirates were all very disappointed at the way Black Bellamy had behaved. And we'll finish this up here in just a moment here. Um, so then, um, what have you been doing in these parts? Said the pirate captain to Darwin, trying to make a bit of lighthearted conversation, feeling more than a little awkward now. We're on a scientific expedition, searching for creatures. I have a theory, said Darwin, looking serious. I'm afraid it's proved to be rather controversial. We came here looking for proof. What is this theory? In terms a pirate might understand. It's not something to be taken lightly. It will make you look at the world through fresh eyes. Things may never seem the same again said Darwin in a spooky voice. Go on, said the pirate captain, his, curious, his curiosity bitten. Darwin gave a dramatic pause. In short, I believe that a monkey properly trained, given the correct dietary regime and dressed in fancy clothes, can be indistinguishable from a human gentleman. I believe he would cease to be a monkey and become more a, a man-pansee, if you will. A silence held the room. One of the pirates whistled. I see, a man pansee, said the pirate captain. But because of my outlandish theories, I have made some powerful enemies, primarily the Bishop of Oxford, said Darwin, unable to keep the bitterness out of his voice. He finds it offensive. He most certainly does, because it contravenes his religious belief. Well, no, it has nothing to do with that, my dear pirate captain. The Bishop of Oxford recently became the largest shareholder in P.T. Barnum's world-famous Circus of Freaks. Darwin leaned forward with a conspiratorial air. The circus has been making a killing of late because all of London town is entranced by its latest exhibit, the fantastical elephant man. Have you heard of him? Arr, he was on show last time we were in England, said the pirate captain. A real disappointment, as I remember. Doesn't even have a trunk. The trick is not to treat him like a gentleman because he always starts crying if you do that. Anyhow, the Bishop of Oxford is clearly alarmed that my man Pansy might steal his elephant man's thunder, so he has denounced my ideas as blasphemous. He even said there was a bit in the Bible about how it was a sin to dress a monkey up in a waistcoat, but when asked for the page reference, he claimed to have forgotten. Darlin was clearly on the verge of an angry rage, so I joined this expedition in an attempt to find a suitable specimen. Only now I received word from England that my brother Erasmus has gone missing. I believe that he is kidnapped by the Bishop of Oxford as a means of safeguarding against my successful return. I fear the Bishop intends to do him some great harm unless I abandon my research. Does that mean you have some success, said one of the pirates? Come, let me show you. Darwin and Fitzroy led the pirates to an enjoying cabin. The pirates gasped, for though the room was dark and cramped, they could make out its sole occupant. Sitting in a leather-backed chair was a monkey with the best posture any of the pirates had ever seen. Dressed in an expensive-looking silk suit, with a pipe in his mouth, the creature peered at the pirates through a gold-rimmed monocle. He appeared to be sipping on some sort of cocktail. The pirate captain thought he could smell gin. The monkey looked as if he had been freshly shaved, but though he was still recognizably a monkey, though if you squinted, he might have passed for a wizened old man or a gigantic walnut. Obviously, he cannot talk, said Darwin, turning on a few gaslights, but he is able to carry on a conversation through the use of flashcards. Though I expect that sometime in the future technology will move on, so that rather than having to rely on the cards, they'll be able to use, oh, I don't know, refrigerator magnets, something like that. The monkey straightened his cravat, held up a series of cards in quick 
succession. Hello there, pirates. Pleased to meet you, he spelled out. My name is Mr. Bobo. So they continue on this wonderful you know, adventure. They go to London and attempt to uh, combat the Bishop of Oxford's devious plans. Um, and you know, just to make sure that you guys have all you know, understood this, the story that's going on, I do have a brief, uh, very teeny tiny comprehensive exercise for you. Please answer all of these questions to the best of your abilities. What do you think the themes of this book were? Several commentators have described, described the main theme as pirates. Another theme might have said to Ben Ham. Would you agree? Which do you think is more important to the pirate captain, Ham or his luxurious beard? If you had to choose which is more important to you, which one do you think you would pick? Choose the letter that represents your feelings upon completion of the pirates and adventure with scientists. I would describe my mood as A, angry, B, restless, C, excitable, D, sleepy, or E, afraid. So, things to think about. Um, thank you so much for joining me today here at, at the library with these wonderful read-alouds. And um, I hope that you've enjoyed some. Sorry that I've gone on a little long. I have a tendency to do that with my classes. But, you know, thank you so much and read some great books.